Well, good morning, Grace Church of the Bay Area. Uh, really good to be with you guys. This church has a special place in my heart. As Dennis said, I spent two years here, two very formative years, and I uh, got to work very closely with Pastor Roger as his intern, which was uh, just absolutely a joy. And uh, it's just great to come back to this church and see familiar faces like Dennis and Carol and so many others. But it's also really great to come back and see brand new faces, uh, fresh faces that I haven't seen before because it means that this church that I love so much is growing. So that is awesome. Uh, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but in the past two years, churches all over the country, all over the world have been closing. Uh, Churches have been shrinking. And in the midst of all this, Grace Church, it appears, has been growing. So praise God for that. Uh, If you guys have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Psalm 107. Psalm 107 will be in the Old Testament today. It's a lengthy psalm, uh, but it's a powerful one. And as you turn there, I want to pose a question to you guys. What do Josh Hamilton, former Major League Baseball superstar, Steve Jobs, Apple founder, and Crime and Punishment, uh, the very famous Russian novel, what do these three things have in common? Let's talk about that. Josh Hamilton. Uh, He was drafted first overall in the Major League Baseball draft in the year 1999, and by all accounts, he was on his way to stardom. Uh, He was uh, an amazing baseball player, a five-tool baseball player, as the baseball people would say. He could throw, he could hit, he could field. He was amazing. Uh, He was drafted by the Tampa Bay Devil Rays at that time. He rose through the ranks. He was on track to be one of the greats until the year 2003, at which point he failed his first drug test. Uh, That would be the first of many drug tests that he would fail, uh, and he eventually worked his way out of baseball. He could not get clean. He was a slave to drugs and alcohol. He left baseball, and it got to the point where he got a job working at a baseball academy cleaning bathrooms. But he worked his way back up. He was drafted again. He got clean. He was drafted again. He eventually ended up on the Texas Rangers And he uh, appeared in, I think, five All-Star games. He appeared in the 2010 World Series, which some of us were watching pretty closely because it was against the Giants. And he won the 2010 American League MVP. Sounds like we're having some mic problems, huh? Uh, So that's Josh Hamilton. Steve Jobs, right? That's a Silicon Valley success story. We know that story pretty well. He founded Apple Computer in his parents' garage. It was an amazing story. He and Steve Wozniak, what a lot of people don't know is that he was fired from Apple uh, in the 1980s. He was fired, he was let go. There's kind of mixed accounts about that. But eventually, Apple contacted him again in the 1990s. 1997, they called him up and they said, come back to Apple. They bought out the company that he had just founded after being let go from Apple. They brought him back. He was the CEO once again. And we know how that story ends, right? The iPod, the iPhone, all kinds of products that have changed the world since then. Crime and punishment. Uh, You might have read that story in high school. It's one of the most famous novels in the history of literature. It tells the story of Rodion Romanovich Raskolnikov. I had to write it in my notes because that's a a mouthful. But it tells his story. Uh, He was a dirt-poor peasant in St. Petersburg, Russia at the end of the 1800s, and he hatches in his his head a plot for murder. Uh, He comes into contact with a very wealthy pawnbroker, and she's elderly. She has a lot of money. What does she need it for? And he decides he's going to murder her. 
Uh, he does it early in the book, and the rest of the book tells his story. He is wrecked with guilt, and his brain can't function. He's sick. He can't deal with this guilt that he has. And eventually, finally, at the end of the book, he turns. Uh, he humbles himself. He confesses not only to someone else, but to himself what he has done, and he experiences transformation. What do these three stories have in common? What they have in common is that these three stories are stories of redemption. Stories of redemption. And we love redemption stories. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. Most stories, not only here in the United States, but all over the world, and actually for all of history, most stories that compel humans are stories of redemption. We love these stories. We eat these stories up. These stories of people who started at the bottom and worked their way back up and achieved success. We love to hear those kinds of stories because those redemption stories are stories that are worth telling. And I say all of that to set up this text, Psalm 107, because what Psalm 107 does is it gives us some stories of redemption. Actually, four pictures, four little portraits of redemption. And as we read these stories, I want you to kind of find your redemption story in here, because you can do that. Uh, Before we get into the text, I want to set this up a little bit, uh, because this is an ancient psalm. This was a song, like most of the other psalms. It was written thousands of years ago, and this song uh, was written for the people of God at that time, Israel, to celebrate their coming out of the exile. So if you know your Old Testament, you know that story. Israel was God's chosen people. Uh, a nation that God chose for himself. God made a covenant with them. He said, if you obey this covenant, you will be blessed. If you disobey the covenant, you will be cursed. And the pinnacle of those curses was exile. They would be separated from the land in which they were supposed to receive the blessing. So God's people, at practically every point, had failed. They had rebelled against God. They received the curses, and they culminated with the people being exiled from their land. This was a self-inflicted exile. This was self-inflicted judgment. But in the midst of it, God was faithful, and God showed himself to be a redeemer. And God saved them, God redeemed them, God brought them back to the land that they had been exiled from, and this psalm, this song, was penned to celebrate that redemption. So what does that have to do uh, with people like us, in the 21st century, who probably have not spent 70 years exiled uh, in Babylon. What it has to do with us is that this song, like the rest of the Psalms, gives us uh, language and words and images to think about our God with. It gives us this language of redemption, and it enables us and enriches us in our worship so that we can worship the very same God who has redeemed us from our sins thousands of years later. So I want to invite you guys to look at this psalm, to take in the God who reveals himself, because this is the very same God who saved his people from exile and Babylon, and he saves people this very day. And what you will find in these redemption stories is your own story, because you have been saved by a faithful and loving and gracious God. So let's look at this text. Uh, We'll look at this text in three parts. Uh, uh, Part one, we're going to see this in verses one to three, and we'll call this 
the call to the redeemed. The call to the redeemed. And we'll really see two components in this call. And the first one is praise. Uh, Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 of Psalm 107. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, Maybe you know your Bible pretty well, and you have noticed that that sounds very familiar. And if that's what you think, you are correct, because you can read that all around the Bible. Uh, Psalm 106, verse 1, just a page or two before that, it says, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The same words. Uh, 1 Chronicles 16.34, Psalm 118.1, Psalm 118.29. These words, or something like it, some combination like it, can be found throughout the whole Bible. Uh, When I was in college, I had a professor who used to say, if you have something important to say, you repeat it. And then you repeat it, and then you repeat it, and you repeat it some more. And these words are emphasized throughout the Bible because they are very, very important. Because we are very, very prone to forget, aren't we? And as God's people are regathered, are united with their homeland, the psalmist wants to remind them to give thanks to the Lord For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And if this psalm were to end right there, that would be a complete psalm and it would be a complete statement. Uh, In fact, if the whole Bible were only that that one verse, the Bible would be complete and we as creatures would be bound to obey that command because God is our creator. God has every right to call us to worship him having created us. But God is good, as the psalm says, and God continues to give us reasons to worship him and to praise him. And the first one is that God is good. God is good. When I hear those words, I always think of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, If you've ever read those books, Aslan is a lion, and uh, he's the Christ figure in these books. And there's a very famous scene where One of the children in this book is being taken to go see Aslan, and she finds out for the first time that this is a lion. And uh, understandably, she's a little bit concerned about that. And she says, "A a lion? Is he safe? Is he tame? And the answer is, oh, of course not. He's a lion, but he's good. And the God of this universe, the God who has been redeeming people for all of history, is a good God. He is many things, right? He is just. He's faithful. He has wrath. He's powerful. But amidst all of that, he is good. And this psalm calls on us to worship this God, to give thanks to him because he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And I think that if you were a Jew at this time reading this text, those words, his steadfast love endures forever, would ring true. Uh, Because when they hear those words, when they hear of this steadfast love, they think of a love that has endured centuries of slavery in Egypt, of exile, of rebellion, of judgment. This love has endured so much, and God is still faithful, and he continues to call on his people to praise him. The call to the redeemed. The first component is praise. The second component is testimony. And that's really at the heart of this text. And that's what I want to focus on as we walk through this psalm is testimony. Uh, Let's read verses 2 to 3. It says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, 
whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Testimony. A while back, I spent some time on the United States Department of Justice website doing some reading. And I now have 10 times more respect for people like Kyle who do this for a living because like 20 seconds on that website put me to sleep. It's not something I'd ever done before and not something I ever plan to do again. Uh, Kyle, thank you for what you do. (laughs) But I did some reading, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to look up the word testimony. And this is what I found. The definition of testimony is evidence presented orally by witnesses during trials or before grand juries. Testimony. I think that's a helpful word and a helpful image for us to keep in our minds as we walk through this text. Because here's what I was thinking about. Uh, You know, it it doesn't take much to be a bad witness. It doesn't take much to be bad at testifying because you don't actually have to say the wrong thing. All you have to do to be a bad witness, to be bad at testifying, is say nothing. Nothing. Right? Imagine a situation in which you were called to bear testimony. Maybe there was an important trial going on and you had a lot of valuable information. All it would take for you to fail in your task as a witness would be to get up there and to say nothing. That would be a bad witness and that would be a bad testimony. And that's exactly what this psalm is telling us not to do. So the the call to the redeemed, the command of this psalm is very, very simple. Has the Lord redeemed you? Has the Lord done something in your life? If that is the case, then say something about it. Testify about it. Speak up about what God has done in your life. The Lord has saved his people. The Lord is a redeemer, so say something about it. The call to the redeemed is to say something, to speak up about what God has done in their lives. And again, if this psalm were to end there, that would be a complete psalm and we would be bound to that command. But God is good and the text continues to give us reasons to obey this command to honor and worship the Redeemer. And that's what we see in verses 4 to 32. And we'll call this section the portraits of the redeemed, uh, the portraits of the redeemed. And it's a long chunk of verses, but I'm going to read these verses for us. And I'm going to read it in one uh, sweeping chunk because I think they're meant to be read out loud. And as I read them, I want you to listen for themes and for patterns because these verses are rhythmic. Uh, They're poetic. They have a pattern to them. They have a rhythm to them. And, And what it's doing is it's reminding you that these themes and these rhythms and these patterns are true in every redemption story. And as we read these redemption stories, we can hear some echoes of our own redemption story. So let's read these verses, the portraits of the redeemed, verses 4 all the way to verse 32. It says this, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. 
For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness, and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress." He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of the deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business in the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Portraits of the redeemed. And I hope you picked up on some of those patterns, some of those rhythms, some of those themes, because the themes that we find in this text, again, are true of every redemption story. Uh, The first theme that we'll see in those verses is desperation. Desperation. Uh, And in fact, in these four different portraits of the redeemed, we find four different pictures of desperation. Uh, The first is in verses 4 to 5, where we meet the wanderers. Uh, Verses 4 to 5, again, it says, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. No doubt, when the people of Israel read this text and they heard about the wanderers, uh, their minds would have gone back to the book of Numbers. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that story as well. God has rescued his people. He has saved them from slavery in Egypt. And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they are under the judgment of God for their rebellion. They had a destination and they had no way to get there because they were under the judgment of God. The wanderers. Uh, Verses 10 and 11, we meet the prisoners Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Remember, these people were exiled from their homeland, and it was very definitively uh, a self-inflicted kind of exile, a self-inflicted kind of desperation because these people had rebelled against God and God had given them exactly what he promised to give them, the prisoners. And how many of you can relate to that desperate situation? How many of you have been in a situation, a desperate situation 
with no one to blame but yourself. The prisoners. Verses 17 and 18, we meet the fools. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Uh, Yet again, we see a self-inflicted kind of desperation. These people have no idea which way is up. And um, the image that comes to my mind when I think about these people is uh, a young child who goes out and he touches a hot stove, (laughs) sizzles his hand. He cries. Five minutes later, he goes right for the stove again, right? Uh, You might know some children like that. (laughs) But if not, you probably know some adults like that, don't you? And maybe some are those adults. People who know what to do, they do not do it, they do the opposite, and they find themselves in a self-inflicted, desperate situation. The fools. Uh, Verses 23 to 27, we'll call these people the storm-tossed. The storm-tossed. Again, those verses, some went down to the sea in ships, Doing business in the great waters, they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Uh, This is a little bit of a different situation. Those first three groups of people We're in a self-inflicted kind of desperation. Uh, These people are in, uh, you could say, in nature-inflicted desperation. They were tossed by the storms. What all four of these pictures of desperation have in common is that all four are emphasizing that apart from the work of God in someone's life, all of us are completely, totally, and utterly helpless. All of us are completely, totally, and utterly desperate. Uh, the, the word that the New Testament tends to use is death. The New Testament says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it doesn't get any more desperate than that. I want to pause right here and say that if you are here today and you are in a desperate situation whether that's self-inflicted or whether it's inflicted by a person or circumstances, if you are in a desperate situation, and particularly if you are in a spiritually desperate situation, I want you to know that you are living in chapter one of a redemption story. Every story of redemption begins with desperation. And if that's you, there is hope. There is hope in this text and there is hope because God is in the business of redeeming people in desperate situations. Let's keep going. Uh, The second theme of these redemption stories, these portraits of redemption, is repentance. Repentance. We find this in verses 6, 13, 19, and 28. All of those verses say the same thing, the same words, and it says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Repentance. Our repentance is a word that's very easy to define and very difficult to live out, isn't it? It simply means to turn. Have you ever walked into a room and forgotten what you came there for and you just turn around and go the other direction? That's repentance. That's a picture of what repentance is. It is quite simply 
to turn, to do a 180. It's one of the most important words in the Christian vocabulary. And every story of redemption, and I don't mean just the Christian stories, but every single story of redemption for all of history has featured this theme of repentance, right? There was a point when Josh Hamilton got clean and left drugs and went back to baseball. There was a point when Steve Jobs went back to Apple. There was a point when Rodian Romanovich Raskonikov turned from his ways. Every story of redemption features this theme of repentance or something like repentance. And the Christian stories of redemption are no different. But there are some key places in which the Christian stories of redemption part ways with these cultural redemption narratives that we love so much. And that's what we find in our third theme. Because a biblical view of desperation goes so deep that repentance alone will not do. And a Christian story of redemption requires this third theme, which is intervention. Intervention. Uh, We see this in verses 7, 14, 20, and 29. Let's read those verses. Verse 7. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Verse 14. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Verse 29. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Have you noticed that God is the hero in all of these stories? All four of those verses began with the word he, because every Christian story of redemption is a story about a gracious God intervening in someone's life, and God is the hero of all of these stories. How many of you have been to a wedding and seen some really bad speeches? I have seen a handful of those. None of them were at Ray and Jessica's wedding, I promise, because Josh and Irish gave those speeches, so they were great. But I have been to a handful of weddings and seen some really, really bad speeches, and they're very uncomfortable, and you've probably witnessed some of those. And here's what I've observed over a number of years and over a number of bad speeches. I have learned this. The quickest way to ruin a wedding speech is to make the speech about yourself and not about the people being celebrated. And the quickest way to ruin a story of redemption is to make the story about yourself and not about the Redeemer. Because every Christian story of redemption is a story about a gracious God intervening in a desperate and hopeless situation. Intervention is the key And intervention is a part, it's a feature of every good redemption story. And that's why it's so fitting that the fourth theme of these stories isn't congratulations, but it's thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Verses 8, verses 15, verse 21, and verse 31, they all say the same thing. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Every single year in this country, we celebrate a day called Thanksgiving. Have you ever thought about this? If you are a Christian, you have infinitely more to be thankful for than anyone who's not. We all have a lot to be thankful for, but anyone who has a Christian story of redemption 
has so much more to be thankful for than anyone else in this world because God is a gracious savior. God is the hero of all of these stories and God is in the business of saving desperate sinners like us. So what's your story? Uh, What is your story? Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Some wandered aimlessly through life. They couldn't find satisfaction. They tried to find it in all the wrong places, in anything but God. But God intervened and saved them from their sins. Some thought they had all they needed. Uh, They had a comfortable life. They had a career. They had a family. They didn't realize how desperate their situation actually was. And then they cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard them, and the Lord delivered them. Some thought they were right with God. Uh, They grew up in a church. They grew up memorizing scripture. They went to youth group at a young age. Again, they did not realize how desperate their situation actually was. But then they cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard them, and the Lord delivered them. Some received Christ at a young age because the Lord is good. And even though they didn't fully realize how desperate their situation was, the Lord did realize that, the Lord revealed that, and the Lord saved them. And they don't have an exciting redemption story because the Lord is gracious and he has kept them from all of that. What is your story? Maybe you're here today and you don't think you have a redemption story. And I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Because Ephesians would teach us something different. Uh, The book of Ephesians, chapter 2, really lays out yet another portrait of redemption. And what this is, is a portrait of redemption through a theological lens. It's no different than these other portraits. It's just a different genre. It's a theological understanding of what happens when someone is redeemed. I want us to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, that is your story. If you are a Christian, it doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what church you came from, doesn't matter how old you were when you first heard the gospel— If you are a Christian, that is your redemption story. And that is an amazing and miraculous and powerful story because it is a story about God. And any story about God, any story about a redeeming and gracious and powerful God is a story worth 
telling. That is a story worth testifying to. It's a story worth witnessing about because that is an amazing and miraculous story. Every single Christian, no matter what their background, has a miraculous story to tell about a gracious God who raised them from death to life. And again, that's why it's so fitting that these portraits in this psalm ends not with some reflections on the redeemed, but on the redeemer. And that's what we see in these last verses. Uh, Verses 33 to 42, we'll call this the redeemer of the redeemed. The redeemer of the redeemed. Let's go back to Psalm 107, and let's read these last verses. Verses 33, and we'll go up to verse 42. It says, He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. And we'll stop there. The Redeemer of the Redeemed. Uh, We won't walk through every verse here, but we will note uh, just a few characteristics about the God who redeems. The God who redeems. First of all, you can see in these verses that the God who redeems does not overlook evil. Uh, You see that in verses 33, 34, 39, verse 40. The God who redeems does not overlook evil. And I think we know that, but I think we can never be reminded of that enough. Because we live in a very unjust world, don't we? Uh, We live in a world of injustice, imperfect justice, and we need to be reminded frequently that the God of this universe and the God of the redeemed has never and will never overlook a single act of evil. And every injustice will be visited. Every wrong will be made right. Every evil will be repaid. Because the God who redeems does not overlook evil. A second characteristic that these verses teach us about this God, this Redeemer, is that he leads his people tenderly. God leads his people tenderly. In other words, he doesn't just redeem them and then set them loose. But God redeems people and then he tenderly and graciously guides them. And you can see that all throughout these verses and all throughout the Bible. God is a tender and gracious redeemer and he walks with his people tenderly. The third characteristic that we see in these verses, and this, re- this really comes through so strongly because this really is the theme of these last few verses, but also of the whole psalm. And that is this, that the God who redeems has power to change any and every circumstance. 
And you could really summarize these 10 verses with one word, and that word would be reversal. God reverses the fates of these people. Every story of redemption begins with God reversing or altering the course of someone's life. Again, you can see that throughout those verses. The wicked have their life reversed on them. The righteous have their life reversed on them. The prosperous have their situation reversed, and the poor have their situation reversed. Because there is no circumstance, there is no situation, and there is no life that God does not have the power to alter. And I think that's a point worth pondering, isn't it? If your life is a mess, if your situation is desperate, or even if your life is going great, you need to know that God has the power to alter and reverse that situation. And again, if your situation is so desperate that you have no hope, you need to know that God is in the business of altering circumstances and changing lives. And every redemption story is a story about God intervening in a hopeless situation. I want to uh, read some words for you from another Christian redemption story from many years ago. And this is the story of a man named Augustine. Uh, You might have heard that name. Augustine is the most famous of all Christian theologians. He lived in the 4th and into the 5th century. And he wrote a very famous book called The Confessions. And what makes that book so famous is that it was one of the first autobiographies that we have recorded. Uh, Augustine did not invent the genre of autobiography, but he almost did. (laughs) He came really, really close. And he recorded this book that's still in print 1,500, 1,600 years later, And it's still in print because it's a story of redemption. And because every Christian story of redemption shares some of these common themes. And Augustine is such a powerful figure for us to look at because he was a man who grew up apart from God. He was just wrecked with guilt. His whole life was marked by sexual immorality and pride, not unlike the sins that most people in our culture struggle with. And he found the Lord, or rather what he would say was the Lord found him. And that's a a better way of saying that. And he wrote down his story in a book called The Confessions, again, still in print. And what this book is really is a 300-page prayer to his Redeemer. And I want to read you a paragraph from that book because I think it rings true in our own lives and in our own stories of redemption. He writes this book. He gets to the the chapter that we've all been waiting for where he comes to Christ, his life is redeemed, and then in the next chapter to follow, this is how he opens up. He says, But who am I? What am I? Is there any evil I have not committed in my deeds, or if not in my deeds, then in my words, or if not in my words, at least by willing it? But you, Lord, are good and merciful And your right hand plumbed the depths of my death, draining the cesspit of corruption in my heart, so that I ceased to will all that I had been wont to will, and now willed what you willed. But where had my power of free decision been throughout those long, weary years? And from what depth 
What hidden profundity was it called forth in a moment, enabling me to bow my neck to your benign yoke and my shoulders to your light burden, O Christ Jesus, my helper and my redeemer. Every Christian redemption story is a story about the redeemer. And God, as this psalm would remind us and as Augustine would remind us, God has the power to redeem anyone. God is a gracious and powerful God. And every Christian story of redemption, every story about the Redeemer, is a story that's worth telling. To close, I want to give us uh, three points to think about as we apply this text, as we think about what we can do with this text. Uh, Number one, pray and evangelize confidently. Because, again, There is no situation, there is no circumstance, there is no person, there is no life, there is no heart that God does not have the power to alter. So when you pray, when you pray for that person in your life who everyone else says there is no hope for, when you pray for that person that has heard the gospel again and again and again and again and again with no change, when you pray for that person, pray confidently Because God has the power to alter any and every circumstance. And when you evangelize, when you preach the gospel, do it confidently. Because while you have no power to change a human heart, God is in the business of changing human hearts. And he has been doing it for a long, long, long time. So pray and evangelize confidently. Number two, testify boldly. Testify boldly. Again, I remind you of those words. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If the Lord has done something in your life, say something about it. Don't be a bad witness. Be an effective witness. And speak up about what God has done in your life. Third, meditate fervently. And we see this from the last verse in this psalm. Uh, Very often the psalms do this, they will apply themselves. Psalm 107 verse 43 says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Devote your mind to thinking on these truths. Ponder these truths. Soak your mind in these truths and be compelled to say something about them because every story of redemption is a story worth telling. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a redeemer. You have been in the business of redeeming desperate lives for many, many years, and you have redeemed the lives of of so many of us gathered here. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't have a complete redemption story, maybe they have desperation, maybe they have repentance, But if they don't have intervention, they don't have a Christian redemption story. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who cannot tell, cannot testify to a story of your redemption, I pray that this very day that would change. Father, thank you. You are a powerful God. You are a gracious God. And you are a good God. And you delight to redeem people. So Father, we praise you and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.